You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Perhaps you've heard these lines sometime in the last 15 years from the 1981 song by Journey called Don't Stop Believing. It was a minor hit in 1981, but got a second life, 2007, 2010, stadium after stadium over the last 15 years. The song, as many of you know, has a memorable tune, which makes that main line, don't stop believing which doesn't come till the last minute of the song, makes it feel so powerful. Don't stop believing. Yet, if you sit down and analyze the lyrics, as a pastor who loves classic rock might be prone to do, you might find out how disappointing and thin the lyrics are. It is a fitting stadium song. For one, don't stop believing in what? What's the object? Don't stop believing, tell me. What are you supposed to be believing in? The story behind the song is that one band member went to the band with the iconic line, don't stop believing, hold on to that feeling with the vague idea that Steve Perry, the voice of, J- of Journey, he had the vague idea that Steve Perry would want to sing it. And Perry loved it, one site reports. And the band went on to improvise and jam until they had dialed in a workable version of the song. So no wonder that a pastor might be disappointed on an analysis of the song. A side note, there's that line, just a city boy, born and raised in South Detroit. If you look at a map, you can see that South Detroit is what the Canadians call Ontario. (laughs) Perry thought that South Detroit sounded good and he didn't realize till years later that it does not exist. Now, I mentioned Don't Stop Believing because that would be a fair summary of the exhortation sections in the book of Hebrews. And we've said before in the series, Hebrews makes the object of faith clear though, that there's two kinds of alternating patterns in the book of Hebrews. There's expositions, and a good summary of the expositions is Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And then there's the exhortations, and a negative way to say a summary of the exhortations is don't stop believing in Jesus. And if we want to cast it more positively, it would be look to Jesus, consider Jesus, cling to Jesus, hold fast to Jesus. That's the exhortations in Hebrews. 
As we've seen in the last two weeks, Hebrews in chapter 3, going through chapter 4, quotes from the end of Psalm 95. And first, he immediately applies it to his readers. The readers in the first century, after Jesus, he grabs Psalm 95, boom, right to them, apply it right to them. Chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. Today, he says, Christians, today, if you still hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts, but renew faith in Jesus. Some are drifting and are in spiritual danger. You aren't guaranteed tomorrow, but you have today. And so be a means, as the church, be a means of God's grace in the lives of each other. That's what Jonathan emphasized so well last Sunday. But now as we come to chapter 4, Hebrews sees more in Psalm 95 than just the immediate exhortation to his hearers. This morning, we'll see that Psalm 95 opens up a whole panorama of God's heart and his plan for his people and gives us new reason from across the Old Testament why it is so critical that God's people today press afresh into Jesus with faith. So the focus in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, is faith. That's the focus. What it is, what it's not, what it does, what is its object. And so we'll look at this passage through the lens of four truths about genuine faith. There are four truths about genuine faith. Number one, faith welcomes the goodness of God. This is verses two and three. Faith welcomes the goodness of God, and in particular, through his word. Faith is the instrument of receiving God's promises and benefits and eventually entering into his rest. Look at verses two and three. Good news came to us, just as to them, that them is the wilderness generation we've been talking about. The people who believed and came out of Egypt under Moses, then they came to the brink of the promised land and they did not believe anymore. And God said, go back into the wilderness for 40 years and your whole generation will die. The next generation will come in. So good news came to them in Egypt. I'll take you out of slavery. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So faith is the key. That's the instrument of receiving God's promise. Four, verse three, we who have believed, there's the emphasis on faith, belief, enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we saw in chapter three, verse 19 last week, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Belief brought them out of Egypt. Unbelief kept them from going into the promised land and its rest. Verse 2 says, good news came to us just as to them. What is this? This is good news here. This does not mean that the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, came 
to the Israelites a millennia and a half before Jesus was incarnate and lived among us and died for us and rose again. What it means is that good news, just in general, good news. This was good news for them. Good news came to them in the form of God's promise to rescue them from Egypt and give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they believed and God brought them out of Egypt. But when they came to the edge of the promised land and 10 of the 12 spies came back with fear about the strength of the inhabitants in the land, God's people by and large no longer believed and didn't enter his promised rest. And Hebrews sees a parallel with us. Not just his readers, us, just as much as them. God's people once heard his good news and believed and were brought out of slavery, but later they lost faith and did not enter into the rest. And so we too, as Christians, we have heard good news, the good news about Jesus Christ, God himself coming among us in human flesh, giving his life, dying for us, rising again in triumph, and now being seated at God's right hand on the seat of honor in heaven. We too have heard good news, the good news, and we've believed. But we have not yet entered into the promised rest. And if we lose faith, we will not, just as they did not. Which raises two questions then for me about the nature of saving faith. The first is how does faith receive God's goodness, God's good promises, God's good news? I'm emphasizing goodness here because the news is called good. It's not just news. It's called good news. Does faith receive good news with disgust? Of course not. I think it's true, but I don't like it, but I believe in it. It's not saving faith. More telling, does faith receive good news with apathy or indifference? No. Rather, true faith, saving faith welcomes God's goodness as it is communicated in his message, in his word, his good news. Faith receives with joy the promises of God for our good. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. It is not neutral. Faith is a function of the whole soul, including the heart. And that's the emphasis in this passage. We saw it last week. Do not harden your hearts. A second question then about the nature of saving faith is the particular emphasis of this passage. What is being emphasized here in Hebrews 4, 1 to 11? The answer is that genuine faith perseveres. Genuine faith perseveres, which leads to number two. So first, faith welcomes the goodness of God. Second, the world and the devil 
oppose and threaten such faith. Verse 1. Jump back up to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, the rest. Now, maybe the most common command in all the Bible is do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. And so we might think that all fear, no matter what is bad, all fear is bad. Christians have no fear. Well, Hebrews 4.1 gets in the way of that. Because Hebrews 4.1 says, let us fear. Are you used to the Bible telling you to fear? <laughs> it does everywhere. All over it's saying, do not fear about certain things. And it's saying, fear in certain ways. There is a holy fear in the Christian life. And this is one of the places to have a holy fear. The fear of facing omnipotence if we do not have the covering of Christ by faith. We should indeed have a holy fear of God and what it would be like if we gave ourselves over to unbelief. Knowing your own heart, you should fear your own unbelief. Which means that losing faith in the Christian life is a real threat. It's not a threat that's going to sneak up on you and happen all at once like a boogeyman. Typically, it comes at the end of a process, often a long process. And if you wonder who or what opposes and threatens our faith, we could say the devil, times of trial, and the cares of life in this world. I'm getting that from Luke 8. All sorts of connections between Jesus' telling of the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8 and Hebrews 3 and 4. You don't have time to go there. I wanted to go there. It's not time to go there. If you want to do a Bible study that complements Hebrews 3 and 4, look at Luke 8, 5 to 15. Now, we've talked before about the general background noise in Hebrews. There's this pressure to return to Judaism, to abandon, get rid of the trials that might be facing the readers. They just get rid of the Jesus piece. That wouldn't have the trials anymore. And chapter 4 now adds a really important piece about how the listeners came into this dangerous position. They had become spiritually sluggish. Their hearts had cooled. They had begun to harden. Their faith in Jesus was fading. Not just from trials, but from the cares of life and the pleasures of this world. And when your heart is hardening and dull, threats multiply. And so we see in Hebrews 13, if you want to see the live issues going on for Hebrews readers, go to Hebrews 13. See what he has to say to them. The threat's not Jewishness in Hebrews 13. It's worldliness. Failures of love, whether for the brothers or strangers or brothers in need. Sexual immorality and adultery. Love for money. 
new disregard for once beloved leaders. Well, that's relevant. Entertaining strange and diverse teachings different than what you had known and what's firmly believed. It's relevant. Beginning to see the here and now as the lasting city rather than the city to come. That's Hebrews 13. The threat's not Jewishness there. Worldliness. What's your term for it? What makes the background noise and other temptations of Hebrews 13 to be live threats is waning faith and an increasingly casual attitude about Jesus and a lack of striving to persevere. The main problem for Hebrews audience is not persecution from outside. It's sin from inside. It's unbelief in here. And that's the same for us today. Persecution is not the main threat. Physical or tweeted. The main threat is unbelief in here. Do not fear those who can only kill the body. But let us fear lest any of our hearts should harden and our faith fail. So how is your faith in Jesus? Is your faith strong? Is it steady? Is it thriving? It's March of 2023. Is your faith stronger than it was, say, three years ago? in March of 2020? Is your faith embattled? Is it thin and weak? Are you just surviving? Are you spiritually sluggish? Hebrews 4 has something to say to us about that. You are not promised tomorrow, but if you are hearing this, you have today. And verse one says, the promise of entering his rest still stands. It stands. But how's that? How does Hebrews say that the promise of rest offered a thousand years before Jesus in Psalm 95? How does that still stand? He's reading Psalm 95. That's where the promise of rest still standing comes from. How does that still relate to us? That leads to number three. Number three, genuine faith strives to persevere. Now, this this is the heart of the text here. This is verses 4 to 8, verse 11. We'll start with verse 11, come back to 4 to 8. Genuine faith strives to persevere. So first, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Is that phrase, that rest, which Hebrews focuses on in this chapter? Now, There is a sense, at least theologically, if not the focus of this text, that that's already present. The rest is in an initial sense already present for those with genuine faith. But that's not the main referent in this chapter. The rest is future. It's a not yet rest mainly in this chapter because our initial faith coordinates with leaving Egypt in this parallel with the wilderness generation. 
And then the rest parallels with going into the promised land, into the final state, into that promise at the end. So then for Christians today, our rest, as in Hebrews 4, is not past, but our rest is the world to come, as he says in chapter 2, verse 5. It's the promised eternal inheritance, as he's going to say in chapter 9, verse 15. It's the heavenly country of chapter 11, verse 16. It's the city that is to come of chapter 13, 14. And it's the kingdom that cannot be shaken in chapter 12, 28. And Hebrews says, let us strive. Strive to enter that rest. Strive. That is Work hard. Make every effort. Apply yourself diligently. It speaks of focused attention toward the accomplishment of a given task. Saving faith perseveres. But how? How does it happen? Very practically. If I say, I want to persevere, I want to enter the rest. How do I strive? What striving do I need to do? How do I make every effort? That's one reason I love Hebrews. Hebrews may be as clear as any single book in all the Bible about three particular means of God's ongoing grace in the Christian life for our faith surviving and thriving. God's word prayer, fellowship. Hearing God's voice in his word, having his ear in prayer and belonging to his body in the fellowship of the local church are his appointed means for the ongoing strengthening and feeding of our faith in our Christian life. Three glorious channels of his ongoing grace to build habits in our life around so that we strive to enter his rest. Now in this immediate context in Hebrews chapter three and four, as Jonathan emphasized last Sunday, we have fellowship. Fellowship is so strong here in three and four. Fellowship is so strong again in the end of chapter 10. And next week, we'll say more about God's word and what it means that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then the following week, we'll talk about prayer, no doubt. How Jesus has opened heaven for us to be able to approach with boldness God's throne room. And in particular, in chapter 4 here, there's a centrality of the word. It's leading up to these two verses we'll get to next week about the word is living and active. Look at verse 2. See, this, the central place of God's word, it is the first and foremost means of his grace to us, that he speaks to us. Verse 2, the phrase, the message they heard in the ESV, a literal translation that would be the word of hearing. Or you might say the heard word. Because faith comes by hearing. You don't just go over to the side and say, I'm going to start some faith from scratch. Faith is fed by hearing. Hearing God's word. Hearing of his goodness. Welcoming that goodness. So one very practical reality for cultivating habits 
for striving to feed our faith and enter God's rest is, are you hearing God's word? Reading it, studying his word, meditating on his word, conversing with others about his word, hearing his word read and preach and discussed. Are your ears hearing and are your eyes reading enough of God's word to feed the flame of faith in your heart? Now, what about verses four to eight here? This is the heart of the passage. This might require your thinking cap, not because it's hard, but because it has us turn our minds in a certain way that we're not used to. And when we read the Bible, I don't think. Many of us are not. There's a very chronological sequence here that opens up the meaning for us. So look at verses four to eight here. Stay with me. It's glorious if you see it. The author of Hebrews makes a stunning move at the end of verse three. Maybe as Eric read the text, you heard it like, so strange, where'd they come from? So he says, we who have believed, there's our emphasis on faith, we who have believed enter that rest. And then he quotes Psalm 95 again, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then almost out of left field, he says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And we think, what does that have to do with anything? We who have believed into the rest, like Psalm 95 says, and then his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Where are we talking about the foundation of the world? Where does that come from? Well, we're going back to creation. The author of Hebrews will explain the next word there, for, therefore. Let me explain, he says. Look at verses four to five. For, he, that's God. God has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, so this passage is Psalm 95, right? And again, in Psalm 95, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, comment here on Hebrews saying, Somewhere, God says it somewhere. I don't think he says somewhere because he doesn't know where. Not like he forgot. Oh yeah, where in the Bible is the creation story? He says somewhere because he's communicating in an endearing way that he and his readers know exactly where. This is not a surprise to them. They know about this text. You know about this text. We already saw Hebrews do this in chapter two, verse six, when he introduced Psalm eight. That's a very famous Psalm. It's no obscure Psalm. And he said, it has been testified somewhere with a gleam in his eye, not because he doesn't know where, but because he knows his audience knows. And he's not appealing to some obscure text that was lost and he found, or even some obscure passage of scripture. He's saying, in the well-traveled places, in the big text, in the ones you know. This should not be a surprise argument. He's appealing to obvious things in the Old Testament. And so famously, in what we have is Genesis chapter two, 
God rested on the seventh day from all his work. But how did Hebrews get there? Answer is the last two words in Psalm 95. My rest. Which, I mean, that's a pretty ominous way to end a psalm, is it not? As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. It's not a high note. But it's a cue to think. And so Hebrews says, he asks, wait wait a minute. God says my rest? God has a rest? Like, God doesn't need to rest. Where does God rest? God rested on the seventh day. Yes, God has rested. That's right. God says, my rest. And so a pillar goes into place at creation. At the beginning, there's a, there's a creation rest for God. Then there's a second pillar. Get this on a timeline here. I'll do it, do it backwards for you. Creation pillar. Right? Now a second pillar across time. This whole time we've been talking about the wilderness generation that came out of Egypt with faith. And then they disobeyed on the brink of the promised land. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then after the death of Moses, Joshua led them in and gave them rest. So pillar two is Moses' people don't get in because of unbelief. And then Joshua brings them in. So creation pillar, one. Wilderness generation into the promised land rest, pillar two. Seems like the story's done, right? You got a creation rest here. People enter into rest. Rest story's done. Not close. But then Hebrews sees, because he's reading his Bible very carefully, he sees a third pillar in Psalm 95. And what tips him off about the the relevance of this rest theme in a later time, so pillar one, two, three, is the psalm says, today, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. So God rests. He offers rest to the promised land. They go in, but apparently the story's not done because 400 years after Joshua, David offers the people rest. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So you enter my rest. Look at verse 7. Again, God appoints a certain day today, saying so long afterward through David, in the words already quoted in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, see he's accounted for Joshua with Moses, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So pillar one, pillar two, Joshua, another day later on, boom, four centuries later with David. Rest still offered. Note those time words. The time words are so important. This turns on a chronological sequence. Verse seven, so long afterward. Verse eight, another day later on. So pillar one, God rested on the seventh day from his works. He entered into his rest. Pillar two, the unbelieving generation dies out. The next generation under Joshua enters the land. And that's not the end because Psalm 95, which is later on and so long afterward, still offers entrance into God's rest. And so we want to ask, what is that rest? If the promised land is not the end of the rest, what is that rest? But first, we'll answer that. 
Let's pause for a minute here to consider how Hebrews reads the Bible. There is something to learn. This is very practical for us. Learn from this. You might call it reading small and reading big. Reading small. The words, my rest, at the end of Psalm 95, open up this whole panorama across time for this theme of God's rest, from creation to Joshua to David in Psalm 95, to bring his people with him into his own rest. So, brothers and sisters, read small like this. Slow down. Linger over particular words and phrases. Read without hurry. Modern life tricks us into rushing through so much. Don't read your Bible like that. Let it be your stem against the tides. Read without hurry, even leisurely. Read at a pace that is conducive to understanding and meditating and enjoying the Bible. Not the pace that we're taught to read screens. Slow enough to ask questions like, God has a rest? Where does God have a rest? God has a rest. And in doing so, you slow down. As you read small, you give your brain precious milliseconds to make connections across the sweep of Scripture. That's reading big. I'm calling that reading big. Consider how concepts that are captured in particular words and phrases and sequences in the text and structures of thought in one place connect to times and places elsewhere. Reading big is seen in Hebrews use of these chronological terms, like so long afterward, another day later. So let's learn to read the Bible like Hebrews in these weeks together, in this year together in Hebrews, big and small, slowly, unhurriedly, meditatively, and all the while, over time, putting together the big pieces and putting them in order of God's big story from beginning to end. Okay, so now about that rest. God's seventh day rest, his rest given in the promised land, the promise of entering his rest still stands, Psalm 95, and now what? What's this fourth pillar. If the rest still stands for Hebrews, what's the fourth pillar? In a thousand years after David, so long afterward, a thousand years after David, the very heir to his throne, one of David's own descendants would be heard on the backwater streets of Galilee saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Rest in pillar four for your soul. Which leads to number four in our final observation about faith. Saving faith rests in the person and work of Jesus. Now we come to verses 9 and 10. That's where we close. And this is a peek at the rest of Hebrews now. We have been through this extended introduction. We're coming now to the end of chapter 4, making our way there. The middle of the book is chapters 5 through 10, and we get a peek here of where Hebrews is going. Jesus 
the great high priest, as we sang about, is the focus of chapters 5 to 7, who offers himself as the better sacrifice, chapters 9 and 10. He is the one who gives us entrance by faith into God's final rest. And so after verses 3 to 8, put together that sequence from God's rest at creation to Moses and Joshua to David in Psalm 95, he concludes with us in verses 9 to 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So why does he call it a Sabbath rest? Where does that come from? Why is it, what's that term? Why is it a Sabbath rest here at Pillar 4? Sabbath rest here is not a reference to Jews or Christians observing a weekly Sabbath. That is just far downstream from where we are at Pillar 4. The Jewish Sabbath was grounded in God's creation rest and from the beginning anticipated the ultimate and final rest that was to come in Christ. In fact, Jesus himself, seated right now on heaven's throne, as we saw in chapter 1, has finished his work and entered into his rest. Verse 10, this, this is interesting. Verse 10 might be specifically about Jesus. Or perhaps Hebrews just words it carefully to be true of both him and us. Now ESV says whoever has entered God's rest, but a literal translation would be the one who has entered into God's rest, even he himself rested from his works. There's singularity and there's emphasis. I can't help but wonder. But either way, verse 10 is surely true of Jesus at present and will be true in the future of those of us who persevere in faith till the end. So I think Sabbath rest is Hebrew's way of saying true rest, final rest, the better rest. And overuse that better theme. It's a glorious theme. You don't want to overuse it though. Who Sabbath rest and call it instead of, instead of better rest. Finally then, what does this all mean for our assurance? If you're feeling that, I'm sure some in this room, as we talk about faith being threatened and it being a live reality that you could lose it, you could have your heart hardened, you could not enter the rest. What does this mean for our assurance? If genuine faith perseveres, and we not only know, and we only know that our faith is genuine as it perseveres, and we have not yet finished our course or rested from our works, it has rested, finished our lifetime, how can we have real assurance? Can we enjoy some solid measure of confidence that our faith is real and that Jesus is going to hold us fast and work in us? what it takes to strive to enter his rest? The answer is yes, we can have a real measure of assurance and it relates very much to this table, which among other things is a weekly corporate means of grace and assurance. We, we're building assurance as we come to this table every week. How would Hebrews give us assurance? He would say, look to Jesus. 
Not mainly to yourself. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. In other words, the question for assurance is, what do you do with Jesus? Do you believe in him? Trust him? Treasure him? Cling to him? Do you have faith in Jesus? To the degree that your soul leans on him and rests in him and that your life confirms it and doesn't call it into question, you can have real, meaningful assurance. He is working in and through you. You can believe to hold you fast as you strive to enter his rest through persevering in faith. So the object of our faith is not faith. The object of our faith is Jesus. We have something to say about the object of our faith. We don't just say don't stop believing and leave it at that. Don't stop believing in Jesus. And this meal keeps feeding our faith, which is why we share it each Sunday. We want to persevere, and this table gives us again and again the one to believe in. His body given for us and blood given for us. So this is a meal for the members of City's Church. But if you would say with us, I believe in Jesus. I cling to him. I trust in him. I want to hold fast to him. Then we would invite you to eat with us and build your assurance in eating with faith with us. The pastors will come. We'll distribute the bread and partake together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.